Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong podcast. We're coming at you from Merlot University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. And I'm Dan. And today Vivek is away, so but we're so excited in today's episode to be on our next part of our prostate cancer series. This time we have a fantastic guest with us, Vinita Thomas, coming to us from the Stevenson Cancer Center at the University of Oklahoma. She's a clinical pharmacist specializing in GU clinical pharmacology, and we're so excited to have her on the show. She's going to add so much insightful information, and we can't wait to share that with you all. So without further ado, let's go ahead and roll that show. All right, guys. So we are so excited today to have one of our guests joining us in, in our prostate cancer series. This time we have Dr. Vinita Thomas, who is a GU clinical pharmacist at the Stevenson Cancer Center at the University of Oklahoma. Vinita, thank you so much for taking the time to join us this evening. Thank you so much, you guys, for having me. You know, we're, we're really excited. And as we've said before in a lot of our episodes, where our pharmacists are our guests, you guys are such a big component of our care team, looking after our patients, especially counseling our patients, helping us choose our regimens. And so it is always so insightful for us to be able to kind of pick at your brain and see what the thought process is and see what these conversations are so we can better integrate that into, into our management strategies as well as our counseling of our patients. So, Vidita, you know, something that we love asking all of our guests when they come on the show is to tell us a little bit about yourself and one fun fact. So, I work in the GU clinic at the Stephenson Cancer Center. It's uh, my full-time job. I don't know about the fun part after having two little kids. I don't know if there's anything fun that's left back in me. But one interesting fact is that in the last year, I've started collecting some indoor plants. And for all my life, I have struggled to keep plants alive and they all die on me within a week. But it's been quite impressive the last year. I mean, my house is kind of filled with plants now and we have a outdoor patio now that we've covered and just dedicated to our indoor plants. And I love my cacti and succulents. So that's been my latest passion. They really have a calming effect after a hard day at work. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Coming home, just having this nice little indoor garden to, to take care of, look after. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, really great. My my dad and mom were actually visiting me not too long ago and we repotted a lot of the plants that I have granted they were in pots that were way too small for for the size of the plant and in the last couple of weeks these things have shot up at least two and a half feet at least the one plant has so i am slowly becoming a, a plant dad as well so i i completely agree with you when it when it comes to that calming effect i really just looking in the i, I love looking in the corner and and seeing my babies growing before my eyes it's it's pretty fantastic but you know Let's switch gears a little bit uh, to talk about why we're here tonight. Thanks again for, for joining us. And I think I'll just kick it right off and, and we'll get the ball rolling. So, Vinita, you know, an important backbone of therapy that we use in prostate cancer treatment is the class of drugs that act as androgen deprivation therapy. And, you know, there's really quite a few options to pick from, including GNRH agonists and antagonists. Can you briefly describe what the difference is in terms of the mechanism between these classes and what guidance do you have to help us select one over the other? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So androgen deprivation therapy is the backbone for prostate cancer treatment. And we have all these different GNRH agonists that are approved. We have luprolide, gosrelin, triptrelin. And in the GNRH antagonist class, we have relugalix, Ranim Orgovix, and we have um, Pharmagon or Tigarelix. So when it comes to mechanism of action, the GNRH agonists, just like the name suggests, they act on the GNRH receptors. They go and bind to the GNRH receptors on the pituitary gland, and then initially they cause an increase in FSH and LH, So, which in turn leads to an increase in production of testosterone from the testes. Now, when this with this initial GNRH agonist action takes place, there is initially a surge in testosterone. And after some time, there is kind of a downregulation of these GNRH receptors, and which leads to like a negative feedback mechanism with the hypothalamus, and that eventually leads to lowering of serum testosterone levels. Whereas with the antagonist, they straight up just go and block those GNRH receptors. So there's an immediate reduction in FSH, LH, and testosterone levels. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. It's sort of it's sort of analogous to how you know starting warfarin it increases your risk of of coagulation at first before it sort of tapers off and and gets its therapeutic effect. But yeah, could could you go into a little bit of how you choose between those options? Right. So as far as choosing. It really depends on, unfortunately, what insurances will allow most of the time. You know, so between the three approved uh, GNRH agonists, there have been no comparative head-to-head trials, but all of them act equally fine. So um, whatever your institution has on formulary or and whatever the insurance will approve for a patient. So most of the time at our institution, we just pick luprolide and we stick with it. Now, as far as going between the agonist and the antagonist, again, insurance approval, unfortunately, because we do not use Degarelix, the injectable form of the antagonist at our institution. And I'm thinking that's primarily because of the cost. Cost is one of the main reasons, because luprolide is now available in generic form, whereas Formagon or Degarelix is not. And another reason I am thinking is because the Garelix, the injectable form has to be given once a month. So it's more inconvenient for patients to just come in every month. And also the Garelix has a pretty high rate of injection site reactions. So it can be an uncomfortable injection for patients. So that's probably another reason why our institution has always chosen Luprolide. And that is our typical go-to. And as far as like between the antagonists, If we have to go with the oral option, again, it's insurance approval. Sometimes that can be a very high expensive copay. There are, you know, assistance options available for patients, but for patients that do not have the the copay card, like options, if they have commercial insurance, they do have the copay card uh, option. But if they do not, then, um, you know, we just really have to evaluate because insurances will ask for a pretty convincing reason why you cannot use the uh, Luprolide or one of the other options before they will even approve it and also for the sake of high copay. Another reason that I would think about is in the phase three HERO trial that got the antagonist Relugulix approved, they found that the rates of major adverse cardiovascular events were lower with relugalix when compared to luprolide. So for somebody who has a pre-existing, you know, cardiovascular 
comorbidity, I might recommend Lugalix. And I have seen physicians choose that over, um, you know, the agonist. So those are some of the reasons we choose one over the other. And you'd mentioned the dosing frequency for Degarelex once a month. And Luprolite is, is the one I'm most familiar with of, of all of these axis of, of meds. Uh, but I recall from my brief stint as a medical oncologist in fellowship that the frequency of dosing was different. I think there were like multiple options. What is the frequency for, for Luprolite? For Luprolite, yeah. So it comes in several different options. So there is a 7.5 milligram intramuscular injection that's given once a month. There is a 22.5 that's given once every three months. They have a 30 milligram that is given once every four months and a 45 milligram dose that can be given once every six months. So really what the physicians and patients prefer to use more often. To be honest, at our institution, we use the three month more often than the others. There are some patients that we use the six month as well. But yeah, there are quite a few options for Luprolide. And, you know, to, to follow up on that, you know, I'm also quite familiar with using Luprolide in, in our clinic patients. And Every now and then we have patients that are that are coming in with with side effects. And I'm I'm curious, what are the major side effects that you counsel your patients about when they're about to start androgen deprivation therapy? Yeah, so when I counsel them, I give them fair warning about the heart flashes that's coming. Um, so that's one of the big ones that we see all the time. So I tend to counsel them with like all non-pharmacological management first before um we try to put them on something for the hot flashes. So I try to counsel them to try keeping the room cooler, you know, try dressing in layers so you can just remove the outer layer if you feel like a hot flash is coming. Avoiding things like spicy food, alcohol, um, and things like that, so just non-pharmacological management. Um, other points that I counsel them on are LHRH agonists can cause bone loss over time. So I counsel on the importance of calcium and vitamin D supplementation. I make them go ahead and get started on over-the-counter calcium vitamin D supplement. We also talk about long-term cardiovascular health and optimizing things like blood pressure, uh, dyslipidemia management, if they have to uh, get a referral placed to a cardiologist. I talk about the importance of a diet and exercise, healthy diet especially because androgen deprivation therapy can cause loss of muscle mass with time. So the importance of exercising as tolerated, like to moderate weight-bearing exercises if possible. And just for the fatigue, you know, the importance of staying active to beat that fatigue. Yeah, those are some of the, the high points that I counsel them on. And specifically for the relugalix, the oral GnRH antagonist, I always talk to them about if they miss their medication for more than seven days, which is a possibility because many of these uh, patients have, you know, older gentlemen, they are on a lot of other medications as well. So I have had scenarios where people go on vacation for, you know, a couple of weeks and they forget to take their medication with them. But if they forget to take their medication, the Relugalix, for more than seven days, then they need to go back on the loading dose. So the dose for day one is 360 milligrams. So it's three tablets on day one, followed by one tablet every day thereafter. So I just counsel them on trying not to forget their medication and the importance of reloading if they have forgotten to take their medication for a week or more. That's that's so helpful. I 
thankfully have not had anybody have that issue yet, but now I feel like it might just come knocking on my door and I'll know what to do. So that is, that is great insight. So Vinita, as a follow-up to that, you know, one of the biggest complaints that, as you alluded to, that my patients complain about sometimes is are the hot flashes. And I also noticed though, not everybody gets them. And I'm just curious, are there things or strategies that patients can do sort of preemptively to try to prevent them from happening in the first place? Unfortunately, nothing other than, you know, little things like I said, you know, keeping the room cooler and lighter dressing, nothing that can we can do preemptively. However, if it turns out to be like a major problem for the patient to where they feel like, you know, they don't want to be on androgen deprivation therapy or they start expressing a lot of concern, at that point, we might start considering like pharmacological options. And our go-to option is venlafaxine. So it it has proven to be useful in our patient population. There are a lot of patients that we put on venlafaxine, and you know we start off at that lower dose of thirty seven point five milligrams, I believe, for the first week. And if they're able to tolerate it well, then I bump it up to seventy five milligrams. And most of them have not had complaints after the the venlafaxine. So that is our go to. That's pretty cool. That's actually, that's pretty analogous to what we see in breast cancer pharmacology too. I remember that from one of our breast cancer episodes talking about side effects of hormone therapy there. If a patient is really intolerant and or maybe they're not interested in venlafaxine, do you ever get any benefit from switching from a GnRH agonist to a, an antagonist? And and if so, do you need to like let that the first one wash out a little bit before starting the the antagonist? So anecdotally, I've had a couple of a handful of patients that, you know, just refuse to be on the lupulide injections. And we switch them over to the antagonist, Reluglex, and anecdotally, they report that, you know, they'd rather be on the, the antagonist, the Reluglex. So, so yes, so like you said, if we give them a three-month shot, then I kind of wait for that three months until, you know, the time for the next shot before we put them on the, the antagonist. But yes, there have been patients who have found the side effects to be much more better tolerated. Even the fatigue too that patients have told me that, especially some people when they get that first injection, the first couple of weeks after they get that injection, they might experience a lot of fatigue and, you know, just uh, depression and, you know, effects on the mood. But on the antagonist, they're able to tolerate that better. So that is a reasonable option. That's great. And, you know, I, I want to switch gears a little bit to another really important class of drugs that we use in the management of our prostate cancer patients. And that is the non-steroidal antiandrogen options, such as darolutamide and apalutamide. How are these different than the agonists and antagonists that we just discussed? Yeah. So these novel hormonal agents that are three medications, ansilutamide, apalutamide, and darolutamide, unlike the GnRH agonists and antagonists, they are pure androgen receptor signaling inhibitors. So they basically competitively inhibit, you know, the, the binding of androgen receptor to testosterone, and they prevent the translocation of the complex, the androgen receptor testosterone complex into the nucleus and further DNA transcription. So uh, these agents, yeah, just act very differently from the agonist and antagonist. And the side effects of these three, there are some nuances between, you know, the three of them. But basically, enzalutamide is can sometimes cross the blood-brain barrier and cause some side effects like dizziness, and so can apalutamide. Whereas darolutamide does not cross the blood-brain barrier. 
So we don't see those rare side effects like dizziness and even possible seizures with the other two agents. I feel like that was something that I saw as I was studying for boards. Like there would be these practice board questions that would be like, oh, this patient has a history of seizures. What drug do you want them on? So I kind of now I kind of get where that's coming from. Yeah, I go over and look at my patient like every new start of uh, enciliodamide and apiliodamide. I go through the med list to see if they have any history of, you know, any anti-epileptics in there. And I also ask them if they have a seizure history. And even if they don't, we have had about one to two patients that develop seizures after putting them on enciliodamide and we had to permanently discontinue them. Wow. So that's a possibility with these agents. Um, As far as sort of steroidal antiandrogens, I feel like one of the ones that the most common drugs I see used here at Rouleau is abiraterone. Are there some sort of like important things to keep in mind there in terms of starting a patient on that and and sort of toxicities that you expect with these agents in particular? Yes. So with abiraterone, we closely monitor the labs with this medication. It is a competitive inhibitor. It competitively and irreversibly inhibits CYP17, an enzyme that is required in the biosynthesis of androgens. So we do a baseline CBC and a chemistry before we start them because these agents can sometimes cause things like hypokalemia and elevation in LFTs. So, and also hypertension, significant hypertension. So, um, just looking at those LFTs. In fact, the package insert recommends that when you first start them, you need a baseline CMP and then every two weeks for the first three months. And from then on, if everything is normal, you can go to monthly monitoring. And then I also, I've had patients ask me about the steroid that we give with it, the the sort of the glucocorticoid, I should say. And they've told me like, oh, you know, he can't take, he can't take a a steroid, his his blood sugars will go crazy. And I always try and explain it's, it's, it's to replace something that we're taking away, right? Right, right. Yeah. So when we block that CYP17 enzyme, that leads to a reduction in serum cortisol and a compensatory increase in the glucocorticotropic hormone, ACTH. So, and that can lead to some mineralocorticoid side effects, like hypertension, edema, hypokalemia. So it's just to mitigate those side effects that we are supplementing with the glucocorticoid. So I, I try explaining to them, I've had the exact same scenarios where sometimes patients get a little too worried about, you know, their blood sugars going crazy. So I tell them it is a small dose and it's just to compensate for that reduction in serum cortisol. But yes, so in the castrate sensitive setting. When they studied abiraterone, the FDA has approved this medication to be given with prednisone five milligrams once a day. Whereas in the castrate resistant setting, the dosing for prednisone is five mg uh, BID. That being said, sometimes in the castrate sensitive setting, or even if a patient takes a five milligram once a day dose, and if they tend to develop some of these mineralocorticoid side effects, I have seen providers just bumping up that prednisone to 5-MGBID before they go for a dose, actual dose reduction to kind of see if that helps. And sometimes it does. To that point, is there ever really a role for a dose reduction? And can patients still get benefit from a reduced dose of the abiraterone, or is it just better to switch them to something else? No, I think there is definitely a role for dose reduction. I have We've had patients with LFT elevations, like significant LFT elevations, when they're on the full dose. So typically when I see those LFTs go up to like borderline grade two or even, you know, high grade one, I kind of, we put the medication on hold. And then after the LFTs have resumed and come back to normal, then we go to like 750 milligrams of abiraterone once a day. 
and they still continue to get benefit out of it. So the package insert says you can go up to 500 milligrams dose reduction, but after that, I would just discontinue it. But a lot of our patients are able to overcome the, you know, the LFD elevation at a lower dose and stay on it. You know, and, and Vinita, while we're on the topic of, of this class of agents, one of these, and, and speaking of studying for boards, this, this question does come up every now and then. They ask about bicalutamide. And quite frankly, I haven't really seen this as the primary treatment modality for a lot of patients. Mainly when I've seen this, it's for patients that have really significant burden of disease, like in a new diagnosis while they're in the hospital, especially in patients that have new metastatic disease to like the spine, for instance. So if we are using bicalutamide for this purpose, for the purpose of you know blocking and preventing and this this surge of testosterone that's going to happen from our agonist medications, how long should we be putting patients on this drug while it's overlapping with another agent? So typically, all you need to do is overlap it for seven days or more. Typically, what we do is we start them, like you said, if they have meds to weight bearing bones or, you know, huge disease burden. What we do is we just start, we send in a 30-day supply of bicalutamide, get them started on it in about, you know, seven to 10 days, get them scheduled for their luprolide, have them come in and then just have them finish off that, you know, like two weeks after their lupron dose. So that way, all those receptors are still blocked while that testosterone surge happens. And, and out of curiosity at your center, do you all ever use bicalutamide outside of this very specific setting? No, we don't ever. I don't ever see it used. Um, with the advent of all these you know, novel hormonal agents, we don't use it as the prime, a primary form of antigen deprivation therapy anymore. I know back in the day before the advent of the uh, all the novel hormonal agents, they used to do that. Bicalutamide at a, a slightly higher dose, 150 milligram dose, I believe, just by itself. But we don't, I don't see that done anymore. And we talked about enzalutamide a little bit earlier, just as one of the other drugs, specifically in its potential for causing seizures. But I also heard about having a role when there's biochemical recurrence. What's what's the story with that? There was this Embark trial that was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and our providers have started using enzalutamide along with androgen deprivation therapy for high-risk prostate cancer with biochemical recurrence, you know, when that PSA starts rising. We've started putting patients on ADT and enzalutamide. Typically, I believe it's done for nine months will be the duration of treatment from what they saw in the trial. I think it's so exciting that we are literally recording this series in real time as prostate cancer therapy is, is changing. And so we will certainly, listeners, go into a little bit more about the Embark trial when we get to that section of our series. But you know, it's great to hear that we're already utilizing this in the clinic and it's been approved for only a few weeks now, which is which is great to see. You know, Vinita, with the advent of so many hormonal therapies, as we've been talking about, it seems that we're going less and less or rather, we're using chemotherapy less and less these days for the treatment of prostate cancer. That being said, though, when do you see and what situations do you see cytotoxic chemotherapy still being utilized for our patients? So when these patients have progressed on multiple you know, novel hormonal agents and they get to that metastatic castration-resistant setting, then I think there is a role of cytotoxic chemotherapy at that time. Also, we use it for de novo metastatic, hormone-sensitive metastatic disease as well. So when somebody comes in with, you know, huge disease burden, 
high volume disease, metastatic, then we tend to go with cytotoxic chemotherapy. If they're able to tolerate chemo, then we'd like to go ahead and start chemotherapy for high volume disease. And is there a preferred agent that you guys are reaching for in these situations? Yes, docetaxel is the first line of chemotherapy that we use in prostate cancer. So in the metastatic hormone-sensitive setting, we use docetaxel now with the approval of the triplet regimens, you know, with the publication of the PEACE trial results and the Aresense trial results, we are using considerable amount of triplet regimen patients who have high volume metastatic hormone sensitive disease. Could you remind us what triplet therapy is once again? Yes. So triplet is ADT plus docetaxel plus either abiraterone based on the results of the PEACE trial or you can do ADT plus docetaxel plus daraluramide based on the results of the Aresense trial. At our institution, we like to go with a docetaxel plus daraluramide because honestly, daraluramide is tolerated much better than you know docetaxel plus abiraterone. There are a lot of overlapping toxicities that we see with both docetaxel and abiraterone because both these agents can cause the LFTs to go up high and to be honest, daraluramide is, is, I haven't ever had anybody complain with daraluramide. It's, it's very rare. There have been some occasions of diarrhea and things like that, but for the most part, people tolerate daraluramide much better. Just to change gears a little bit here and move away from, I guess, pharmacology, no, not really pharmacology, chemical treatments. One thing I, I remember feeling really excited about when I was in fellowship learning about prostate cancer therapy was uh, this sort of concoction, Cipulus LT, which I think was at least the first cell therapy in a solid tumor that I can remember hearing about. But I remember not seeing it used that much, at least not in my clinic. Can you talk a little bit about this? Like what what exactly is it and when do we use it? So Cipulusel, brand name Provenge, it is what we call a autologous cancer vaccine. So we use it in the metastatic castrate resistance setting. When we see that PSA just going up high and they are asymptomatic. Patients have to be asymptomatic if they have to get on this therapy. Asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic to the point where insurances will ask you this in the prior authorization that if they are on a long-term or a long-acting opioid, if you have to get this uh, treatment approved. Oh, wow. What we basically do with Cipilucil is About three days before the patient is set to start their treatment, we coordinate or send them to a blood institute for leukophoresis, where their white blood cells are collected and the antigen-presenting cells are isolated. They're kind of, they're shipped off to the dendrion, the manufacturing facility. And there, these cells are kind of manipulated to, to attach these components, which is the prostatic acid phosphatase, PAP, and another component, which is immune cell activator, which is GMCSF, this granulocyte macrophage uh, coronary stimulating factor. And then they're cultured with the patient's antigen-presenting cells for, I believe, about 40 hours. And then these cells are then infused back. They're shipped all the way back to our facility when a patient comes in for the treatment. And it is kind of tricky to get all of this organized and, you know, coordinated. And there's a lot of logistical steps that that's involved in this process. So basically, when the package arrives from then or shipped back from Dendrion, you have to coordinate the patient's infusion appointment, 
same day. In fact, within you know a couple of hours, because once you open that box with the with the cells with the bag of cipulucil, it will expire three hours after you open the package when it's at room temperature. <laughs> so it can be challenging sometimes. And then so these cells are then infused back into the patient, and then this should induce a immune response from the T cells, and the T cells are supposed to go and attack these manipulated antigen uh, antigen presenting cells. Yeah, that's. I'm starting to see why maybe we don't see it used all that often. <laughs> Between a very narrow indication for use and a, a lot of practical barriers to uh, logistical barriers to making it happen, that that sounds like a real challenge. But basically, sensitizing antigen presenting cells to a specific antigen, letting the T cells do their thing. What kind of side effects do you look out for when somebody's on that? If you're able to actually achieve <laughs> a successful infusion? Yeah, we do use it quite a bit in spite of all of this. Some providers like it more than the others. So we do see it these days. It is very well tolerated. So there's not many side effects that you see. I haven't had anybody complain of any side effects except for the hypersensitivity reactions that can occur mm. during infusion. Got it. So there is some pyrexia, some flu-like symptoms, headaches that can happen when they get the infusions. Again, another big problem that we run into is when they have these fusion reactions, you have to interrupt the reaction, you know, interrupt the infusion and then take care of the reaction. So then that puts you, that bag of cipulosal is just sitting out there at room temperature while the infusion reaction is being managed. And then at three hours, you just have to discard the bag. So that's something to think about, you know, when initiating these patients on cipulosal. It's good to know that the drug doesn't have that many side effects because as we've discussed many times, quality of life is something that is super important in, in our patients, especially those with metastatic disease. And you know, if these patients are already asymptomatic and then we're subjecting them to symptoms, are we really doing them a service? And so it's great to hear that that is something that is not necessarily as burdensome for these patients that are on this this medication. Right. And most patients are, you know, happy after they've received their medication because most of the time with cytotoxic chemotherapy, you know, with all the side effects that can happen, you put them on all these different other drugs to take care of those side effects. Whereas with this, you just, you can manage those reactions at the infusion center right there. We just pre-medicate them with acetaminophen and, you know, diphenhydramine and uh, possibly just have some PRN meperidine on hand in case of those rigors. But other than that, it's, it's tolerated just fine. And similar but different to that drug is also radium-223. I've also never seen this used. And so similarly, what are the indications for its use? And you know, when should we be considering this drug for our patients? Yeah, so radium-223, brand name Zofigo, it is a radiopharmaceutical agent. So this is a suitable option for a patient who has metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer with bone-only meds no visceral meds, because this radiopharmaceutical agent is a calcium mimetic. It likes to go and specifically bind to those areas where the bone meds are. So these are basically just high energy, short path, alpha emitting agent that, you know, just, just exerts its action on those areas of bone meds. So it's given once every four weeks for about six doses, I believe. And our radiation oncology department takes care of it. We refer them to radiation oncology. And this is also pretty well tolerated. I do not see a lot of complications with this. Sometimes we do see there can be some mild myelosuppression. 
the idea is that since these alpha particles are a short path, like they are not, the idea is that they will not attack the surrounding cells, the cells in the bone marrow. So it does not cause profound myelosuppression as chemotherapy agents would. So we, however, we do see small degree of myelosuppression. And sometimes a thrombocytopenia can be a reason for dose delay and some mild nausea, vomiting, which, and diarrhea, which can be managed with supportive pair agents. Wow. So that's not like bound to a targeting agent or anything. It just, it's, it's just the radium and it kind of goes to bone on its own. That's, that's pretty cool. I've also heard of, you know, using lutetium 177 or lutetium. I only ever read the word. I'm not sure how it's said 177. And I know that for things like neuroendocrine tumors, that's, that's bundled up in a carrier molecule that targets it to, to the neuroendocrine cells by the sort of somatostatin receptor for for prostate, when we're using lutetium, is there like a is there a targeting molecule attached to that? Yes, there is. So we typically get a PSMA scan for these patients. We order a PSMA scan, and it's only for patients that have metastatic lesions that are PSMA positive, so prostate-specific membrane antigen positive lesions. So only for those patients, um, this medication is indicated. So it can be used in a metastatic castrate-resistant setting for patients who have progressed on prior docetaxel and a novel hormonal agent. Then, and if they have a positive lesions on a PSMA PET scan, because this tissue 177 molecule is, you know, bound to this moiety that just goes and it's it's uh, specifically binds to the PSMA expressing prostate cancer cells. That makes sense. So it really is quite similar to to how we use it in neuroendocrine. It's it's uh basically you can pop it in the same thing that you're using for the scan, but it's just say instead of being a signaling type of radiation, it's a, a lethal type of radiation for the cells. Okay, that, that's very cool. You know that we we sort of touched on this uh, just a few minutes ago when you were talking about some of the pharmacological therapies that you prescribe to your patients, including calcium and vitamin D and things like that. And you also discussed quite eloquently about the importance of bone health for our patients. So, is there a role for patients to get DEXA scans? And you know, when should we be also then reaching for things like bisphosphonates if we know that bone density problems can arise in patients on therapy? Yes, because androgen deprivation therapy can cause an increase in um, you know, bone turnover and loss of bone mineral density. It is recommended that we do a baseline DEXA scan for all patients that starts on that start on androgen deprivation therapy. And now if the if the DEXA scan comes back and shows that the patient has osteoporosis, then we should definitely start them on uh, a bisphosphonate or denosumab. Um, now, the indication or, or the dose for uh, osteoporosis is different from, um, you know, when we use uh, bisphosphonates or denosumab for like skeletal meds. So the dosing is different. So if, if the DEXA scan shows the patient has osteoporosis, then uh, we can give them a zoledronic acid, the Zometa, 5 mg annually, once a year is, is all they need. Or if the DEXA scan shows that patient has osteopenia, bone loss, and they are on ADT, then denosumab is also approved in that setting. So you can use the 60 milligram dose once every six months to make sure that it doesn't get any worse while they're on androgen deprivation therapy. 
And it is recommended that we do that baseline DEXA and then repeat it a year after just to see um, that we're getting a response with these agents. That's great. It's uh, good to know. It's something I definitely have worried about and with any kind of hormone therapy uh, for this or, or other cancers that respond to it. I think that was a really great discussion overall. You know, we took us all the way from manipulating the GnRH axis with agonists and antagonists to steroidal and non-steroidal antiandrogens and how to sort of mitigate the side effects of manipulating testosterone. And through some new data related to enzalutamide, again, we're going to get into in more detail in a later episode. And then some of these other non-chemical therapies or radiopharmaceuticals, which I guess are sort of chemical therapies and a cellular therapy for a solid tumor. So a lot of really cool stuff in prostate cancer, it seems like. Yes, yes. It was really exciting to be part of this conversation. And I just love talking about prostate cancer drugs all day long because that's what I do at work. And, and you know, I again, I, I want to say how insightful this conversation was just because these are conversations that we need to be better about having with our patients when we're starting them on these therapies. We are fortunate that we also work at a place that have fantastic clinical pharmacists like yourself. But, you know, I can imagine that this is not the case everywhere. And so a lot of that onus does happen to fall on the clinician. And we are often not given that sort of guidance or experience providing this counseling. So this is so, so, so helpful. And I want to thank you for, you know, taking the time to to be here today. I, you know, just any final thoughts or remarks or concluding comments that you want to make before we wrap up for today? Yeah, I think it's really ex- exciting to see all these, you know, new approvals in prostate cancer and all these oral agents that we use. And there is a tremendous role, like you said, for pharmacists. And it is really exciting. And one of the things that I forgot to mention earlier was with all the novel hormonal agents, there are a lot of drug interactions. I totally forgot to mention about that earlier. But with drugs like enzalutamide and apalutamide, they are notorious for having a lot of drug interactions, especially with anticoagulants. So um, that's something that I do every day on a day-to-day basis, just looking at patients' med list to make sure that there are no drug interactions either. So while it is exciting to have all these new treatments available, it also poses some challenges to, you know, just for us to be proactive and take some steps to make sure we give our patients the best possible care. And that's why we appreciate you guys so much for all you do to help us and for for our patients as well. I do also briefly before we wrap up We'll also want to thank our friends at the Pharmacy Podcast Network for putting us in touch with you. And so we're really excited to be partnering with them, especially for these episodes where we highlight our clinical pharmacists. So thanks to Todd and his team over there for creating this connection. All right. Well, I think that wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow on Call. Thank you again so much, Vanita, for joining us. And until next time, listeners, we'll see you all later. Thank you. See you later. Bye.